grind like today makes it or breaks it. Hustle like you never have before and thrive on the fruits of your labor. Hustle, grind, thrive, repeat. This is Thrive Kings. Here's your host, Craig Fountain. Welcome to the Thrive Kings podcast. I'm your host, Craig Fountain, and today is episode eight. And today's guest is the CEO and founder of Axial, an online platform used by thousands of business owners and their advisors to raise growth capital, explore acquisitions, and exit their business. Now, our guest started Axial 11 years ago after seeing firsthand how much opportunity there was to improve how entrepreneurs execute the most important business transactions of their careers. It's my pleasure to share with you today my conversation with CEO and founder of Axial, Peter Lehrman. Follow the show online at Thrive Kings on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Peter, welcome to the Thrive Kings podcast. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Now, I'm excited to talk about Axial, uh, your business. Um, in buying, selling, raising capital as far as entrepreneurs are concerned. But before we get into all the nuts and bolts of that, I really just kind of want to get a feel of how you got to where you are now. Uh, Where did you get your start in entrepreneurship? What led you to entrepreneurship? And and can you kind of take us on your journey? Sure. Um, I mean, you know, very quickly, I I was born into a family uh, with an entrepreneurial, um, I guess, DNA. I mean, my father was an entrepreneur, um, and so it, it was part of, it was part of the dinner table conversation when I was a boy. Um, and I'm the youngest of five children. And if you can believe it, all five of us have gone off to do different, um, entrepreneurial ventures of our own, uh, all different kinds. And so, um, I guess none of us know how to be um, know how to be an employee all that well. Um, so it started early. Um, my first job out of um, out of college uh, was actually working for my brother Thomas, who's uh, six years older than I am. He started a business um, in his mid twenties uh, with a partner, and I was one of their I was their first intern and running lunch orders and doing whatever needed to be done as they were getting the business stood up and off the ground, and then ended up being one of their first full time employees. And you know that was just an incredibly lucky uh, sort of right place, right time opportunity. My uh, brother and his co-founder went on to develop a business that still uh, lives on to this day. And uh, the business grew to several hundred employees over my seven years of tenure there. Um, So I, I think I really got the bug for entrepreneurship, not just because I went and worked there, but because of the experience that we had there. Uh, the business grew very, very well and very rapidly building out a set of products for professional investors. Um, and just the entrepreneurial journey of seeing the company grow, building new products, hiring people, making mistakes, having fun, building great relationships with people who I would have never learned from or, or met if it hadn't been for that business. I mean, it really kind of opened my eyes to what a um, what an entrepreneurial journey can be made up of, uh, other than just you know the the financial side of it, right? Which is is obviously less predictable. But just all the friendships, all the relationships, all the things that I learned, it, I realized that was kind of what it's like to to start a company or to be part of the starting of a company, be part of its growth. 
So, you know, that made me feel really confident that I wanted to sort of have that kind of professional career. Um, but I did want to kind of get a little bit of a monkey off my back and, and start my own business because I felt, you know, a little bit like I might be a, a hanger on working for my brother's company. So I went back to school um, in my mid-20s. I went back to graduate school. And after finishing graduate school when I was 27 or 28, uh, I, um, I started Axial. Um, and I think I just really felt like, you know, it was time for me to, to do my own thing to see if I could um, stand up and, and start a business that was valuable and, and had a good product and a good offering and, and do it on my own and, and build a team around uh, the business and the mission and, and set out on my own. So yeah, I think it started real early um, and then I got an incredible taste of it uh, thanks to my brother Thomas and, and his uh, founding partner and the opportunity they gave me to, to be part of their journey. And then uh, went out on my own in my late 20s and I've been running Axial for about 11 years now. Now, Axial is involved in uh, acquisitions, raising capital, um, buying and selling businesses, things of that nature. Is that kind of work related to what uh, the your family members are doing as far as in in their ventures? Um, well, it's it's related to what my brother Thomas's business uh, did. My uh, my other siblings. I've got a sister who runs her own show jumping equestrian barn. So she's a professional horseback rider and built her own uh, business around that. I've got another brother who runs his own backcountry powder skiing operation in Montana. Uh, and then I have another brother who uh, started and runs his own tea house. Um, so real different uh, ventures, no question about it. I think the, the one that's most related to what I've been doing at Axial is um is what my brother did uh and what my brother developed uh but my other my other siblings have gone off in, in wildly different directions that have been you know lined up with what they love and what's interesting to them and, and what's meaningful to them so um, not a whole lot of direct competition no trash talking at things no I no, gotcha. no there's there's definitely not a lot of competition <laughs> at least at, at least within the family thank goodness now, what attracted you to uh, acquisitions and investing and buying and selling businesses? What was the need that you saw in the marketplace? What inspired you to uh, take that path, to, to go, go in that direction? Well, I think it's a couple things. Um, so, you know, just to maybe back up for a half a minute, um, Axial is a software company and we provide a software platform on the internet. Um, you just go to our website, uh, axial.net. And as a buyer or as a seller of businesses, we provide a set of software tools that help buyers find acquisition targets. And we provide a set of tools that help sellers find a potential buyer for their business. So we serve entrepreneurs who are looking to exit their business. We serve corporations that are looking to grow through acquisitions. And we essentially serve as like a digital intermediary, um, you know, creating a, a safe, confidential, trusted venue on the internet where buyers and sellers can find one another, can connect, can meet, and can exchange information confidentially. We've been written up in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg as like the match.com for, uh, for the mergers and acquisitions world, um, which is... Um, you know, fa fairly accurate, frankly. It's a matchmaking service for people buying and selling companies that's built on top of the internet. And so, 
that's what the company does. I think the reason why I was really interested in in this pursuing this idea and trying to build a business like this was because the world of small business acquisitions is an incredibly, incredibly, uh, in my mind, um, broken world. The entrepreneurs running small businesses, they don't have access to you know, great Wall Street advisors, they can't afford them. They don't have access to some of the proprietary databases and information uh, that the, you know, sort of Wall Street firms are able to afford. And as a result, when you're a small business owner, you have a huge disadvantage just in terms of information and in terms of expertise uh, when it comes to raising capital for your business or pursuing an exit, selling your business and making sure that you can sell your business for a full and a fair value on your terms and on your timeline. And, um, and that's a status quo that, you know, in America where you've got millions of small business owners and they make up a great, great amount of employment and GDP and are the fabric of a lot of communities, that, that, that's not a good status quo for, for America uh, in the 21st century. We, we, we really can do better than that. And the internet provides a platform to level the playing field uh, in a way that um, before the internet, I think was much harder to do. So from a mission perspective, you know, our goal at Axial is to you know, really unleash the potential for you know, these small business owners by creating a much more um, transparent, much more accessible uh, capital market for them to both raise capital and exit their business. Um, but in order to in order to realize that vision for, for, for small business owners, you obviously have to have the, you know, the money come to the table as well. So it turns out that if you're buying small businesses, you're not selling them. It turns out if you're buying small businesses, one of the hardest things for you to do, one of the most complicated, expensive things for you to do is find really good small business opportunities to invest in. It's not like going to, you know, your Charles Schwab brokerage, online brokerage or your E-Trade brokerage, and you just, you know, go in and, you know, you find Tesla and Apple. And if you want to buy some stock, you can, you know, do it with a couple of, of clicks of the mouse. If you want to buy small businesses and do it for a living or do it in an entrepreneurial way, you have to meet every single one of those small business entrepreneurs one by one by one, because their business isn't for sale on the stock market every day of the week. Um, and so, the sourcing of investment opportunities for buyers of small businesses is extremely, extremely expensive and extremely time intensive. So what Axial tries to do is, is not just make the playing field much more level for entrepreneurs looking to sell their business, but we, we've become effectively a lead generation platform for uh, acquirers of small businesses. And we make it much easier for them to find businesses that might be for sale and to have conversations with those entrepreneurs in a private confidential setting. So you got to have a good value proposition for both the sellers and the buyers if you want to solve this problem. Um, and it was the opportunity to try and create that kind of solution for the market that I guess kind of made me fall in love with the idea of Axial and you know, has, has given me the, I guess, the inspiration to continue running the business for 11 years through lots of hard times and, you know, lots of, of challenges uh, developing the business and, and building it to a place where it really can, can realize its potential. Now, Axial is a software first business, correct? That's right. How yep. involved in, in the buying and selling 
process is axial or is this simply the matchmaking aspect of it? We really focus on providing the tools and the data to create uh, great um, introductions and great matchmaking between buyer and seller. That takes Axial really, you know, if you think about the purchase of a business as kind of like a funnel or a progression of milestones, you know, there's the initial set of uh, pulling together the materials on the business, then the entrepreneur needs to decide whether they're going to do it themselves, you know, and sort of like selling your house for sale by owner or hiring a real estate agent. There are agents in the sale of businesses. An entrepreneur has to decide whether they want to hire an agent, which is referred to as an M&A advisor or a business broker or an investment banker. And um, then they put together materials on the business. So we're sort of involved in helping them assemble those materials, codify those materials if the entrepreneur needs help selecting an agent, we can refer them to a set of curated agents. But once they have begun to interact with the buyers confidentially one by one inside of our software platform, um, we are uh, kind of done with our piece of the process. At that point, the seller and, you know, it's kind of like the seller and the buyer at that point are sort of, you know, going through a courtship period and, you know, they're kind of better off left to themselves to, to, to sort of figure out whether the opportunity is, is, uh, uh, is a great one for, for both sides. So we're sort of involved in the first, you know, few weeks of interaction, the exchange of materials, the signing of the NDAs. And we do all of that through a, a digital first software oriented platform, signing the NDAs, the confidential introductions, private phone calls, all of that is facilitated through the platform. Once you're getting on an airplane or hopping on a, in a car and, and going and, and sitting down across from one another and, and getting to know one another a little bit better, uh, which is all part of the sort of courtship process of, of buying and selling businesses, we are, um, you know, we're, we're, we're stepping out of the way and uh, we know our place. Now, are the businesses that you work with industry specific or can they be any type of business, any size business? What, what does that look like? Yeah. So we have a couple a, a couple areas that we focus on um and it used to be that we only focused actually when i started the company our sole area of focus were american industrial or manufacturing businesses um, so that was sort of the first major industry vertical that we focused on and then as the business grew and as we uh developed a broader and broader platform of both buyers and sellers we began to enter into different industry verticals. Today, we focus on four uh, major industry verticals, the industrial and manufacturing category, the technology uh, and information uh, technology services category. So tech, software, and IT, it's the second category. The third category is the consumer goods and services category. So that can be consumer products, that can be retail, that can be restaurants. Uh, but really any product that is being produced and distributed uh, or service that's being produced and distributed for the benefit of a consumer. Um, the uh, fourth category is the healthcare uh, and healthcare services related category. Um, and then the final category is a little bit of a catch-all. We call it uh, B2B services. So it's like 
services industry that focuses on, on serving businesses. Some people call it business services. We call it B2B services. Um, we don't focus on the real estate sector. So people buying and selling buildings or hotels, uh, people buying and selling apartment complexes, that's, that's a major industry and major category all to itself. And there's a number of platforms on the internet that are actually solely dedicated to, to serving those market verticals. So we have, uh, uh, we've stuck to our knitting and just sort of focused on these operating companies as opposed to sort of real estate assets. Um, in terms of size, you know, the primary area of focus is the small business economy in America, which typically refers to businesses that have somewhere between, you know, at the low end, sort of two to $3 million in annual sales up to about a hundred million dollars in annual sales. Um, the local businesses, so the local, you know, butcher, the local baker, that's actually the local business economy in America. And they actually also need a they need a separate platform from what Axial offers. And there are some platforms that serve local businesses much better than than Axial does. So we we focus on the niche of businesses that have several million dollars in revenue up through uh, usually not more than 100 million. And our sweet spot tends to be businesses with between five and, and 50 million dollars in annual revenue. Now, Axial is also involved in raising capital, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the entrepreneur is, is not actually looking to sell their business today, but they're looking to raise capital for for a variety of reasons. So we we provide tools to exit your business, but a lot of those same tools we have repurposed uh, to create opportunities for entrepreneurs to raise capital as opposed to just for selling. So, that's so right. is Axial involved at all in startups? So we, we don't really serve the startup community. Um, the startup community, uh, you know, look, it's, it's an interesting term, right? I mean, some people referred to, you know, to Facebook as a startup until it went public, right? And that's kind of crazy, right? It was doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. That's not really a startup. I mean, I know it gets referred to that way because it's a tech company and it had a software engineer as its founder. But when I think about startups, I think about businesses that have no revenues, they maybe don't even have a product yet. Um, you know, it's one or two guys or gals looking to put together a business, but there's no product or service that is out in the market generating revenues yet. Um, we don't serve that market. We serve the revenue generating small business economy. Um, and we chose the revenue generating small business economy because we felt like the startup market was really well served. It gets a lot of coverage from the media. There is the Silicon Valley venture capital ecosystem. There are big venture capital ecosystems in New York and Boston and Austin and growing in Chicago and Denver. And, you know, those startups are kind of like, you know, they're going for the grand slam, right? They're looking to hit home runs, right? That's the, that, that's the model there. The American small business economy is it's more bootstrapped. It's more blue collar. They're not trying to, you know, go from 2 million to 50 million to a hundred million in, in five years. They're looking to patiently, methodically, you know, and in a bootstrapped way, grow the business. And that market, that small business economy, it's actually a much, much larger economy of businesses and business owners and employees. And it's not well served at all by, by uh, the venture capital ecosystem in America. 
Um, and those businesses are not nearly big enough to become public companies. So it's not well served by America's, you know, stock exchanges either. And so, you know, maybe a, too long of an answer, but, you know, we really wanted to focus on the small business economy because we thought it was the, you know, it was a poorly served part of, you know, the American entrepreneurial economy at large. We thought it was a big opportunity and an important opportunity. Um, and, um, and, uh, so we, you know, we, we've stuck to our knitting and just sort of stayed focused on revenue generating family owned and founder owned businesses. And we steer clear of startups and, and venture capital, which is a, a great ecosystem all to itself, but it's, it's not where we, uh, where we do our best work. Now, when you started Axial, what did the beginning look like? What was that first, you know? period like your startup period what what was that like and, and what did the growth look like from then until where you are now yeah well um you know, how much time do you have i guess is my question <laughs> for you but uh to, so here's you know one of the challenges when you start a a lot of people tend to look at axial as a marketplace for buyers and sellers right an internet marketplace not like ebay not like uber um, it's a different kind of marketplace. It's a marketplace connecting buyers and sellers of companies, but it is a marketplace. And so when you start up a marketplace, whether it's on the internet or otherwise, right, you need to figure out how to attract both buyers and sellers, right? You don't have a business if you don't have both buyers and sellers. So that's one of the most grueling um, and, and, and complicated aspects of, of building marketplaces. And that's certainly been the case with Axial. Um, and that's why I chose different industry verticals uh, to get started, because I needed to find some way to define the market and to become specialized. Otherwise, it was just going to be, you know, a boil the ocean type of challenge. Um, and so day one, our focus was on building an initial software product that would help both the seller and the buyer find one another and match make with one another and be able to do it privately and confidentially. The biggest opportunity for Axial was to um, was to use the internet, but not in a way that would create a public for sale sign for an entrepreneur's business, but a private confidential system on the internet that would allow an entrepreneur to safely and confidentially share that their business was exploring a capital raise or a sale. So those were like the big decisions we made early on um, was make sure it's confidential, make sure the entrepreneur gets to decide. They don't have to hang a shingle on the internet and say my company's for sale because that's not the way most entrepreneurs want to go about selling their business. And, um, and then we didn't charge them, right? We don't charge the entrepreneurs, we charge the buyers. Um, and so day one, uh, you know, for the first couple of, you know, frankly, for the first couple of years, it was really all about just sort of building that critical mass of industrial and manufacturing business owners and brokers uh, that are selling businesses in that category and accumulating the same critical mass of buyers on, uh, on the buy side of the marketplace. Did it take and a you, long time to get your first deal from when you launched? It, it took a long time for the first deal to close. You know, it, it, the, the sale of a business from start to finish very often takes easily six to 12 months. So there's a lot of latency in the process, right? It's, it's not like other marketplaces on the internet where, you know, you're buying an e-commerce product or something like that, or you're getting a ride on Uber. When you 
when you make a match on Axial, a confidential match between a buyer and seller, or between one seller and maybe 10 prospective buyers, they're not going to ultimately close a deal if they close one at all until at least three to six months later. Um, so there's a lot of latency um, in, uh, in in the marketplace just based upon the kind of transaction that we facilitate. Um, and so, yeah, it was easily 12 months until that had happened. Um, and that's obviously painful. I mean, one of the things that we were lucky on is we got free rent for our first two years. I was able to squat um, at my prior company, uh, the company that I was sharing earlier. It was my first job. They gave us free space. Um, and they made a small investment in the company to help us, uh, you know, just pay some bills and stuff like that and help us get going. So that was super helpful. Uh, in addition to putting some of my own money, uh, into the business to get it off the ground and a few others. And, um, that really kept our cost, our cost structure really, really low for the first couple of years. Um, from there, we began to charge subscriptions. Uh, as a way to fund the business. So we started charging subscriptions to the buyers. We continued to keep the product free for the entrepreneurs and for those that were selling companies. And we began to charge subscriptions to the buyers. And the subscription model was uh, a, a really painful learning lesson for us because um, it, was, it, it was an example of where I don't think a subscription model is really that ideal. If the buyers paid us a subscription and they went on to find and close a deal, the subscription was the best deal ever, right? Because when you buy a business, you know, it's an incredibly lucrative event if you've bought the right business. And our subscription model didn't really give us upside and alignment when our clients on the buy side were, were succeeding like that. But if you subscribed and you didn't successfully buy a business in, in within any given 12 month subscription period, it was very easy to look at it and say, you know what? I just paid the subscription. I didn't close any transactions. This thing's not worth, it's not worth the subscription. It's not working. So we began to develop a set of different pricing models for our customers to choose from. And today customers can choose to either subscribe or they can pay us a closing fee if and when they close a transaction. And we let the customers choose now. Um, so, you know, I think we would have developed the business more quickly and been more successful if we'd been more flexible in terms of our pricing model earlier on in the life of the business. But the truth is that that's water under the bridge and there's nothing we can do about that now. I'm happy to have learned the lesson and committed to, uh, to the change. Uh, and it's, uh, it's definitely helped the business, um, you know, grow, uh, more, more effectively. And it's also, put us in a position where our clients feel like we're easier to do business with. And, and whenever your clients feel like you're easy to do business with, that always ends up being a good thing. So we're happy to have made that change. Wish I'd made it sooner, but like I said, water under the bridge. And what's, what's kind of the state of Axial now? Uh, when you look at the growth from when you started up, like for example, how many deals are you doing a year now? Yeah, so I think this year we have a shot at probably having our customers do somewhere in the neighborhood of, um, it looks like it could be as much as 50 to 60 deals this year. Okay. Um, and each one of those deals is sort of somewhere between a $10 million and a $100 million deal for the most part. So, um, you know, over the course of the year, we'll you know, hopefully facilitate somewhere between 
300 million and a billion dollars worth of transaction volume over the course of the year. And that's some pretty substantial growth, you know, to going from one deal to, you know, your first deal taking <laughs> 12 months to close and now you're doing 50, 60 a year. Uh, you know, that's pretty crazy when you think about it. Now, the well, pandemic. Well, it's taken 11 years to figure it out. So, right. uh, and the, you know, um, so, but yeah, no, we're, you know, everything starts with, with one little kernel of success and the team at Axial's worked super hard and we've had a lot of clients that have uh, given us the benefit of the doubt as we were developing the model. And so I'm grateful for, 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 for all of them because, you know, we've been able to, to figure out a way to, make the business work in a way that works for our clients and, and works for us as well. So it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a journey all unto itself, but it's, it's great to finally feel like we've got a, an option on the table that works really well for both the buyers. The sellers have always been very, I think very happy, obviously, because it's been a free service for the most part. Um, but uh, yeah, getting things dialed in with the, the buy side of the marketplace has, uh, has obviously been really, really gratifying in the last few years. What, uh, how has the pandemic changed the way businesses are being bought and sold? And what have you had to do to adjust to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's the question of the day, right? And uh, let me give you some anecdotes. So I think, first of all, in, in January and February, we had an incredibly robust amount of deal activity. We had multiple closings and then boom, like just crickets, zero in March. And then we had one deal that was a carryover from pre-coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, circumstances that closed in April. And then it was zero in the rest of April, zero in May, zero in June. So it was, it was uh, we were like crossing the Sahara Desert uh, right. with, you know, one, one canteen uh, from the one deal that closed in April. Um, and that's just because buyers were holding off sellers that didn't have to sell were like well this is not the right market to sell in i mean everything everybody's terrified the sky is falling right and so the m a market you know literally almost went to zero um and you know then it was a, a big question sort of what's going to happen next now the, thank god for for the world and the world's entrepreneurs as well as for us at axial the market for transactions began to really in earnest sort of reopen in late June and, and July. People had started to figure out ways of safely meeting with one another. People were getting in their cars instead of on airplanes to go and visit management teams. The market figured out how to use Zoom and you know other you know video uh you know video programming and, and video uh you know based tools in order to have conference calls that used to be in person and so you know it took like you know it, it took a lot of that and then it took a lot of stimulus and you know a lot of stuff from the federal government and stuff like that i think to sort of give people you know a sense that there was a bit of a safety net and the bottom wasn't going to fully drop out now going forward what's really interesting is i think that the way that businesses get bought and sold is going to change in a couple important ways. I think the first thing is a lot of buyers are going to think about what is a company's capacity to, to withstand things like this, right? Now, they only happen like apparently once every 100 years, right? But what if that's not true going forward? I think a lot of buyers are going to want to know 
what happens if there's another pandemic, right? And, and how does the business respond to that? Does the business's customers disappear? Is it an essential business? So I think businesses that can demonstrate essential, essential characteristics for these kinds of black swan events, you know, not every business can can be that kind of business, right? If you're in the restaurant business, that's a, you know, it's not like you can pivot and all of a sudden be an essential restaurant business, but businesses are going to get rewarded for being able to demonstrate that they are essential in, in these kinds of sort of dire catastrophic circumstances. I think, um, and they will get, you know, uh, you know, a valuation premium because of their re resiliency during these periods of, uh, of risk. Um, so it's like being I... able to say, you know, uh, it's a buzzword like recession proof or yeah, something exactly. like that. Now, now it's going to be pandemic proof, you know, that sort of thing. So number one, the fact that they're essential considering the circumstances certainly would have, would increase their value. Absolutely. I mean, there's just, you know, over the last, so in July, transactions started closing again, uh, you know, uh, both on Axial and, and, and more broadly. And the skew in the transactions that were closing was all organized around either e-commerce or essential services. I mean, the businesses that were, that were successfully closing, we had an e-commerce business that closed. We had a trash uh, a, a trash hauling and trash maintenance business that closed. We had a, uh, a chemicals business, um, which was in the cleaning and hygiene category of all, uh, of all things, uh, that was, you know, that was, uh, bought and sold, um, during that period. So you could see the businesses that were successfully transacting during that period. I just met up with a client this morning. They have a business that manufactures electrical components for the American uh, Department of Defense. They produce components that go into the Tomahawk missile and to other like really mission critical weapon systems. You know, that's, you know, America wants to have functional Tomahawk missiles no matter what's going on with the pandemic. So it's, it's these kinds of businesses that have been able to transact successfully during this last four or five months of, of really like dire uncertainty. And I think that's going to go away for the next, you know, like going forward. I think as we get into the fall, I think there really is more and more normalization and we're figuring out sort of how to live a more normal version of our lives. And so I think the type of businesses that are going to be capable of accessing capital and, 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 and successfully selling themselves, it will diversify back into some of the non-essential categories. But I definitely think that essential business characteristics are going to be something that's going to be really appreciated and, and valued by buyers going forward. And I think any business that can modify its its customer base or its products and services in order to make itself, um, you know, more essential um, and, and more capable of withstanding, um, you know, these kinds of of black swan events um, is it's it's worth doing if if the entrepreneur can can find a way to migrate the business in that direction. The the other really big change is that, you know. Now that Zoom is here and, you know, and, and its competitors, I mean, the way in which the due diligence on businesses gets done will definitely change. We just had our first set of buyer and seller on Axial. Uh, they just actually published a case study where they never, ever met in person and the deal was done. We have it up on our website. It's a, a case study, a M&A advisor on the sell side 
was hired by an entrepreneur to sell the entrepreneur's company. He never met the entrepreneur in person. He met him over Zoom. They talked about what he wanted to do. The entrepreneur decided to hire him to, to, to run the sale process for his business. They got the business ready and they started approaching buyers. They used the Axial platform to approach buyers. They used their own personal networks to approach buyers and they connected with those buyers through our digital platform. And then and as opposed to getting in planes and trains and going and meeting with the buyers in person, as the deal went down the line, they did all of it through Zoom, all the way to the closing table. Um, and that must be exciting for for you to see that what you've built aligns with what is likely going to be a mostly remote uh, marketplace in the future. I mean, that goes probably for for almost any industry that's have that's had to adapt during this pandemic to working remotely. You know, I think I think the remote work is here to stay, or at least you know there's going to be a lot more remote work and flexibility than there used to be. Um, that must be exciting that you guys fit perfectly in that mold moving forward. It, it It's exciting for us, for sure. It's a great, you know, it's a good tailwind for us, Craig. Um, and it's exciting for the market too, because some of these, you know, I personally think that, if I were buying a business for 10 or $20 million, I probably would still want to go and meet with the business owner in person. But what I can tell you is that the old way of doing things was that you would go and meet that business owner very early, you know, pretty early into the process, you know? And I think all of that in-person stuff is going to get backloaded uh, to the very end of these transactions, right? If you want to, you get introduced through, you know, a buyer and a seller get introduced, whether it's on Axial or whether it's the old fashioned way. And, you know, the buyer's in Kansas and the seller is in, you know, Florida. It makes total sense for their first conversations to just be on Zoom. You know, it's it, it saves everybody time, saves everybody money. It allows the courting process to begin much more efficiently and productively. And so I totally agree with you. I think the way buyers and sellers of businesses are going to interact in the early and middle stages of a deal courtship process is going digital and never looking back. I do think that before, you know, a bunch of buyers, you know, professional buyers of businesses are, are, are writing, you know, multi tens of millions of dollar checks. I do think they are going to ultimately want to come and knock on the door, come and meet the business owner, or come and, you know, visit, you know, the the facility, you know, to the extent that that's, you know, that's relevant. But I think a lot of that is going to get more sort of pushed to the to the very tail end of the sort of the eighth inning and the ninth inning of the process, and that allows the marketplace to move more quickly and more expediently. Um, and that's a good thing for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's a really good thing for entrepreneurs. So it, it's a good tailwind for the market. It's obviously a good thing for Axial, but it's a, it's a really good tailwind for the market uh, at large. Now, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here. And, and a question I want to ask you is if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm looking to uh, – doesn't have to be my first venture. If it's my first venture, a new venture, what have you – what are some of the pros and cons of buying a business versus actually starting a business? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 a great question. Uh, the truth is that the 
the list of pros and the list of cons is really significant for both. So let, let me try and state what you know might be obvious to some, but hopefully is, is novel to others. When you start your own company, you have a clean slate, right? There's nobody there. It's just you. You're going to either make it happen with your team and your vision and, and, and your plan, and you're going to stumble your way into success or, or, or maybe not. And it's a function of quality of your idea, how well and how hard you work, how wisely you make decisions, how you ultimately develop people and a culture around you. But it's a clean slate, right? And that's that's brutally hard. It also is really beautiful because you're not inheriting anything, right? Um, so the you know the pro and the con are almost the same side of you know the opposite side of the same coin, right? When you go buy a business, you've got products, you've got customers, you've got customers that expect X, Y, and Z from you. You've got a culture that already exists inside that organization. Maybe that culture is awesome. Maybe it needs help. Maybe it's really toxic. Um, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got baggage, both good and bad. So, you know, when you go and buy a business, you, you really want to try and understand what do I have and, and what do I not have here? The beauty of buying a business is it's in many ways, it's a proven business already, right? You're not starting from scratch. It has products. It has customers. Those customers are paying you hopefully more than it costs you to deliver that product or service. And that's being reflected in, you know, in the company's net profits. So you have a proven product or a proven portfolio of products and services. And that is a huge risk off the table. Whereas when you start something from scratch, that risk is on the table. Um, so that's why a lot of people love to pursue entrepreneurship through acquisition, right? Is you got a business, you got customers, you got profits, and then you can sort of slowly, you know, get in there and tune the business, improve the management team, try and, you know, instill a stronger, uh, you know, better culture, a healthier culture, a culture focused on, you know, the right set of standards and the right level of employee satisfaction. But you can do that over time as opposed to be, kind of building the airplane all, you know, at the same time, right? And you also don't have, I mean, one of the brutal things about starting a company is you're always living on borrowed time. You know, it almost always is burning money at first. So you have this, you have this fuse that's just burning and you know at the end of the fuse is either a stick of dynamite or you have to be going out and raising more money. When you buy a business, that's already generating profits, you're not on that treadmill day one. So it allows you to focus on doing fewer things. You know, you can just focus on, all right, how do I improve this company's culture? How do I improve their products? But you don't have to sit there and panic that in six months, you're not going to be able to make payroll or you're not going to be able to, you know, pay your broadband bill. So there's fewer things to worry about, but, um, but you don't get that clean slate, you know? So th there, there's a lot of uh, activity actually, Craig, in this world called entrepreneurship through acquisition. There's a lot of um, folks that uh, set up these vehicles called search fund vehicles. Basically, what they do is they raise a couple uh, a couple of bucks from investors, and they say, "Give me 12 months, maybe 18 months, to go out and find a business to buy. Give me a little bit of money to pay my bills while I try and search for that business. Then, when I buy that business," 
you as the initial investors will have the right to invest in that business on a pro rata basis. And I will then go in and become the CEO of that company. And it's a model that was pioneered actually uh, at Stanford um, in the business school at, uh, at Stanford University in California. Um, but now it's kind of just spreading all over the place. I mean, people are realizing that this entrepreneurship through acquisition model is really, really compelling. Um, of course, you know, the, the clean slate startup is, you know, is, uh, still alive and well and you know it's you know it's part of part of the american entrepreneurial ecosystem i mean facebook microsoft google apple i mean these are all clean slate you know blue sky startups um and and uh so you need both i think in a healthy you know in a, in a healthy capital market you need both but it's been really exciting to see the entrepreneurship through acquisition model begin to really take off and become more and more of a mainstream possibility uh just in the last handful of years here Many entrepreneurs start their own businesses with the intent to work their businesses for, for a long time. Others start their businesses with the intent to sell down the line. What are some of the considerations that business owners should keep in mind when running their business so that if they need an exit strategy, they're transaction ready? Yep. Yeah, there's, it's, it's the right question. Uh, to ask because it kind of applies to everybody, right? And um, you know, there's something in the answer uh, for for everybody. One thing I'll say too, Craig, is there are some entrepreneurs that actually oscillate back and forth between those two poles. In other words, you know, this year they're like, you know what? I love this. I'm gonna run this thing forever. I just love this way of life. And then, you know. It, their mind changes. Something happens. One of their competitors sells their business for a huge number. They go, you know what? Or, you know, or they develop a new interest, right? So, you know, so over the life of your journey as an entrepreneur, your mind can change on whether or not you want to kind of run it forever or whether you want to run it and, and sell it. It just, it's not a permanent position in the mind of an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, you're you know, it's, it's emotional. So you, 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 you can change your mind over that journey. And so I think as a result of that, you kind of want to think about running the business in certain ways, like you would own it forever. Um, and in other ways, you want to be running the business so that if you want to, or you need to, you can sell it tomorrow. Um, and those two might be, um, you know, in some ways like in conflict with one another, but I think actually less so than, than, than people might think. So let me, let me, let me explain a little bit. Um, when you, you know, sometimes what people try and do when they try and when they're getting ready to sell their business is, you know, they gloss it up, they stop spending money to take care of the machines. They reduce their payroll and cut corners here and there. They, you know, they, and they're doing that in order to try and increase the, the net profits of the business to sort of put a little bit more makeup on, on the business. Um, a professional buyer usually figures that out. It, 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 it usually is kind of, they, they can usually figure that out. They can start to see that the business is generating more EBITDA and that it's been doing it. And they can begin to figure out where it's coming from and they can see the corners that you're cutting. And so you don't really necessarily get paid for doing all of that, you know, sort of like 
all of those sort of near-term shortcuts because the buyer, if they're smart, realizes I'm going to have to sort of reinstate all of those costs in order to run this business appropriately and run it well uh, and run it for, for long-term value growth. Um, whereas if you run the business, if you're going to own it forever, you don't cut those corners. But the thing that you do do, if, you're, if you want to be ready to sell it tomorrow, is your books and records are in clean shape. You don't you don't skimp and have some knucklehead bookkeeper or controller who doesn't know what they're doing, keeping your financial statements for you. You spend the money to have good, clean, clear financial statements. You understand that a professional buyer is going to want to have a rigorous audit and be able to scrub your books and really prove that your revenue is your revenue and that your profits are your profits. You don't cut those corners you know, in the years uh, that you run the business, you have, and what that what that does when you you know when you when you don't cut those corners, is it really does make the business more transaction ready. If you have a business that has, on an annual basis, is getting its financial statement you know numbers at least reviewed, if not audited, you are in a you are worlds away from a business that hasn't done that in terms of transaction readiness. You know, if you've got a digital, you know, document, uh, you know, you know, just just, you know, a, a hard drive, you know, like Google Cloud or Dropbox or whatever, where you've got all of the key, you know, in, you know, articles of incorporation, the documents that govern the business, the, you know, uh, you know, the, all the, you know, sort of nuts and bolts of, you know, demonstrating that your business is running legally, your business is operating, you know, in accordance with, you know, the laws and, you know, the states in which it operates, just all that stuff. It's, I know it's all just so annoying red tape, you know, for, for, for entrepreneurs, but you got to pull all that stuff together and you have to have your books and records, your financial statements, you know, and all of your legal documents. So that's got to be in a really good place um, for you to transact with a professional buyer. They're going to insist on that and they're not going to, they're going to, they're going to make it a condition of closing that those things are delivered to them, you know, to their satisfaction. So those are places where you just see so many entrepreneurs where they've got a good business, they've got good products, they've got healthy customers, but they're, you know, just the backside of the house is just, you know, it's just a mess back there. And um, that really makes it hard for you to turn around and, and sort of sell a business in, in six to 12 months, um, you know, which is what it sort of takes from, you know, from day one, talking to your first buyer to, you know, to, to getting to the closing table. If you don't have that stuff ready, I mean, the other things that I'd say make you transaction ready beyond, you know, just having your admin in place and, and having your back office, you know, in 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 clean uh, in clean shape, is also just when you sell your, you know, when you sell your business, it's the most valuable financial asset usually in your life, right? Entrepreneurs have a a huge amount of their net worth typically caught up and bound up in their in the value of their business. And so if you haven't done any estate planning, if you haven't talked to, you know, uh, a good, you know, tax uh, accountant or tax strategist on um, just the tax considerations associated with selling the business, different ways to structure it that are entirely legal, but that have very, very different ramifications, you know, that, that stuff takes time. 
you know, and, and, uh, you know, if you're just sort of picking, if all of a sudden one day you wake up and say, you know, I just, I want to sell this company and I want to go, you know, start this other company, or I want to go sail around the world with my spouse or whatever it is that's, you know, made you all of a sudden change your mind. You're going to leave a lot of money on the table. You're going to create a lot of heartache and a lot of heartburn for yourself. If you, you know, if you haven't addressed these issues, um, in advance. And so I think, you know, there are certain aspects of running the business that are, are common sense for entrepreneurs that want to run their business forever. There are places where they have no inclination to, to cut the corners, but there are a lot of places where entrepreneurs say, oh, I'm not going to do that this year. You know, I don't want to, you know, spend the money to get a financial audit. That's $20,000 that, you know, uh, I, I can't take out of the business. That's $20,000 that I can spend some other time. And all of those places where you cut those corners, they build up over time. And, um, and some of those places end up making your business substantially less transaction ready. Um, so you can recover from, from, from this for sure. But the key thing is not to think that you can recover from it, you know, in three weeks, you know, if, if you haven't put the time in and put the work in to sort of cover your bases on some of these really critical tax legal financial due diligence questions, that's, uh, that's a place where you're going to want to spend some time. And then the only other thing I would say is if you have never spoken with any buyers of a business before, if you have no relationships, no warm relationships, no active dialogue with potential buyers of your business, and you're just going to sort of kick off the process from a cold start, that's fine. But you're always better off if you've spent a little bit of time as the business owner, you know, just playing a little bit of cat and mouse and having done a little bit of courtship with potential buyers of your business prior to actually going into sort of a full, you know, sort of a full sale mode. Because when buyers have had a chance to know you, when they've had a chance to track you and track the business a little bit over time, and, you know, you see them for a cup of coffee once a year or something like that, then you pick up the phone and they've had a chance to get to know you. There's a little bit of rapport and trust established. You pick up the phone, you call them and say, hey, I'm you know, thinking about doing something, right? That's a really, really, really different way to sort of kick off the, uh, you know, the auction process as a business owner than I've never met any of these people before. And now I'm just going to, you know, do a 400 meter sprint over the next six months to try and get, you know, one of these buyers uh, you know, comfortable, uh, buying this business that, 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 that works. You, you can definitely sell your business that way, but it almost always accumulates to your advantage as an entrepreneur. If you've got a couple of warm relationships, um, you know, that predate the, the active sale process. Um, so those are, those are some places where entrepreneurs typically miss the boat. And then, you know, it ends up sort of coming back to, to, to create extra work and an extra timeline and, and, and heartache when, uh, when all of a sudden they, they want to hit the exit. If button. I want to sell my business, how do I know what the value of my business is? Is, is that something you're involved in as valuations? So we, um, we can provide some guidance on that. Um, you know, there, there's a couple different ways to think about valuation, uh, Craig, I think, you know, the the guidance that we tend to provide is market-based guidance so you know no one business is the same as any other business but 
but businesses are similar to one another, right? You know, Google is an advertising business. They sell digital ads. So is Facebook. Are they the same? No, they're different. They have different ads, different types of users. The users interact with their products differently. But if you go look at the way those businesses are valued, they're 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 valued as advertising businesses. And and you know those businesses have a a typical set of prevailing valuations that are a, a function of the the business and the what the business does and how the business operates and how predictable it is. And that's true for every business. So the guidance that we tend to provide is um, typically guidance that's based upon either a multiple of revenue or on a multiple of EBITDA, which is essentially a, um, you know, a financial uh, uh, mouthful uh, that really refers to the annual um, net profits of a business before any interest expenses or any taxes or any big depreciation charges. Um, and some businesses are valued off of a multiple, uh, tend to be valued off of a multiple of revenue um, for a variety of reasons. And some businesses tend to be valued more off of a multiple of their EBITDA or their net profits before interest in taxes, uh, interest in taxes. And that's what kind of gives you the guidance. Like that's the zone that gives you, that gives you the zone, right? Um, what it doesn't give you is, it doesn't give you the actual valuation of the business. Um, and one of the things that's so problematic about privately held small business companies is none of them trade on the, you know, the stock exchange. So, you know, none of these businesses actually have a value, a daily valuation, you know, that you can go online and, and see it over time. So the truth is that you can get into a zone of, a zone of value, a range of value for a business based upon looking at data from companies that are similar to yours. Um, but at the end of the day, the way that you ultimately arrive at the valuation of a privately held small business is through the market, you know, the market process, right? And the market process for the sale of a small business is, you know, back to the reasons why we, you know, we started the company, it's an imperfect process, right? You don't have thousands and thousands of bidders looking at your business the way that you do uh, if your company is publicly traded and it's Google or Apple or 3M or Johnson & Johnson. There's thousands of buyers and thousands of sellers that are looking at buying and selling you know, publicly traded stock every day in the market. And that's not the way it works for a privately held company. So in order to really nail the valuation of your business, you have to ultimately have a plan when you go to sell your business or when you go to raise capital for your business, you have to have a plan for how are you going to get a set of credible, interested buyers to the table at more or less the same time. In other words, you have to have a plan for how to create some sort of auction dynamic that keeps the buyers honest and gets them willing to, um, to offer up a value for the business that gets closer and closer to you know to its real value and if you don't have lots of buyers at the table if you only have one buyer at the table it's harder to do that right? it's much harder to do that right same thing when you sell a house if you only have one person interested in buying your house it's harder to get your asking price or to minimize the discount off your asking price than it is if you just have two so 
it's super important for entrepreneurs to understand that if they go out into the market and they just talk to one buyer at a time, their likelihood of being able to receive the full value of their business and really arrive at a fair value for the business is lower. It can happen. You can do it that way, but you're much better off having multiple potential buyers at the table that are ultimately negotiating against one another and competing uh, to, to be the buyer of choice. You can take it too far, you can stretch it too far, and you can make them all feel like they're sort of piling into this auction and that the winner is going to be, you know, subject to the winner's curse. So you have to be careful that you don't overplay your hand. But on the other hand, you have to be careful that you don't underplay your hand. Uh, so you've got to have multiple buyers at the table. You have to have access to some basic information on what companies like yours tend to sell for. And then you uh, let the market, you know, you let the market speak. And this is one of the areas where a good M&A advisor or a good investment banker can really, really earn their earn their fee. Right? A, lot, a lot of investment bankers, you know, can really earn their fee by driving, you know, a, a sale process for your business from, you know, an initial offer from a buyer of 10 million to, you know, a, a final offer of 12 million, right? 13 million or from, you know, 50 million up to 60 million, right? You know, that, that happens. And, um, you know, $10 million is, you know, that's real money uh, for, for someone. And that investment banker, you know, is going to charge you, you know, one, two, three, you know, percent of that. And you're going to keep the rest as the entrepreneur. So if they can help you deliver that kind of an outcome, you know, they, they, they can pay for themselves very, very quickly. Um, but um, yeah, there are entrepreneurs that know how to do this themselves and, 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 and that's fine too. But it's, it's one of the most important parts of the sale process is what's your plan to have multiple credible buyers at the table competing against one another in order to be the buyer of choice for your business. You don't have a plan for that. You're never going to realize full value for your business, no matter what it's worth in the spreadsheets. You're just not going to get there. All right. So Peter, there's a few questions that I like to ask all the guests that come on the show. Um, I'm curious because in my mind, leaders are readers. Uh, do you have any books that you can share with the audience that, that might be valuable? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, gosh, there's just, there's so many good books out there. Or really I'll, just I'll any just, of your favorites. Yeah. So I'll share a great book called, I'll share a couple. Uh, one book that I try to read multiple times is called High Output Management. I've given a lot of copies of that book out to members of my team. High Output Management is a book written by a guy named Andy Grove. He was an immigrant to America from, uh, from Hungary, and he took over for Gordon Moore at Intel long ago uh, and went on to become one of the most remarkable American CEOs uh, in general. He was uh, an engineer by training, barely spoke a word of English when he came to America, and uh, he passed away a couple years ago. He wrote an amazing book called High Output Management talks all about his approach to managing people. Uh, he's a manufacturing engineer by training, so he compares every business to a manufacturing plant, talks about things that way. And it's a really interesting analogy. Um, and it's, a, it's just a wonderful book on meetings, managing people, leading people, communicating. I just think it's a great book. Um, 
there's a, another book that I think is uh, probably less well-known than that book called Conscious Business. Conscious Business is a book written by a guy named Fred Kaufman. And Fred Kaufman is, um, he was the executive coach for Jeff Weiner, the CEO who led LinkedIn through its sort of incredible growth period. And his book, Conscious Business, is really all focused on uh, how to build great businesses um, and, and, but doing it with lots of virtue, lots of compassion. In other words, doing, doing well and, and doing good at the same time. There's a lot of books on, on that topic. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a fashionable topic. I really happen to like Fred. I think he's just an excellent coach for life coach, great CEO coach, great leadership coach. And I think he put a lot of really good principles down, uh, you know, in that book. So I love that book. It's not a particularly well-known one. And I think it's, um, and you can read it chapter by chapter, uh, which is uh, a really interesting book. Um, and then maybe I'll just give one more. Um, I think, I think it's, it's coming back around again, certainly getting more popular. Um, there's this very popular author named Ryan Halliday, who's begun to write a bunch of very successful books on, on the Stoics and the ancient philosophers. Um, and so it's, you know, the sort of Stoic form of philosophy has come back into vogue. There's a book that was written <clears throat> called Meditations. And it's a book that was written by Marcus Aurelius, who was uh, uh, one of the most successful generals in the Roman army and then went on uh, almost really against his will to become um, uh, uh, one of the leaders of, of ancient Rome. And he wrote a book called Meditations, and it was a book that he wrote largely while he was actually out commanding the Roman army and was out either managing remote, far-flung territories or out conquering. Um, and it really is just an amazing book on... Um, him and his life and how he thought about it. It's really like a, just wouldn't think that such a successful war hero was as, um, you know, as sort of philosophically profound as he was. Um, and there's a lot to learn in that book. It's called Meditations. It's a quick read. Um, and it's, again, it's something you can pick up and put down and pick up and put down. So those are, those are three books that I've returned to actually, like kind of again and again uh, over the years. And every time I read them, they kind of mean something new to me. So I, I feel like they're classics because they always have something to, to learn from. Now, gotten into podcasts a lot too, I have to say. Yeah. Are you more of an audiobook guy or do you like the old fashioned words on a Well, page? you know, I do a lot of running and, um, you know, so I, I probably run every week. If I just think about it, every week I probably run somewhere around anywhere between four and seven hours okay. a week. And so um, you, you can spend that time sitting there listening to the same, you know, the same damn songs, or you can spend those four to seven hours either listening to an audio book or listening to some interesting podcasts. And so I definitely still listen to the music every once in a while, but I listen to a lot of podcasts now during that time. And it's, it's, uh, you know, the podcast is just taken off. There's so many interesting people to listen to. There's, there's a ton. It's hard, it's hard to wade through it all, but uh, hopefully plenty, plenty will find us here uh, at Thrive Kings. Now, what is a piece of advice that you wish somebody would have given you when you first started as an entrepreneur? And I'm sure you got plenty 
because you said your whole family is full of entrepreneurs. You know, there's a lot of good advice that I wish I'd gotten and that I wish I'd listened to or, or both. But I'd say one good piece of advice is to have, to hire a coach, I guess is what I'd say. Hire a coach right away, almost right away. Um, and if you're not going to hire a coach, have some have someone whose perspective you tend to trust and who you can confide in, um, you know, right away. Because you just, just like every other human being, you have all these blind spots, but when you become an entrepreneur, those blind spots can be really expensive. And in addition to the blind spots being really expensive, Nobody is going to expose you to those blind spots unless you hire them and pay them to do that. Because, you know, you know, no one wants to tell the CEO that, you know, they're talking too long or they're, you know, rambling or they're, you know, when they, you know, when they do A, B, and C, it really demoralizes the team or, you know, you just don't get that feedback from someone who works from you. They're afraid that you're going to be defensive. They're afraid that you're going to maybe fire them, that you're going to be threatened by them. And so it takes a long time sometimes for an entrepreneur to actually have any sense for what accidental damage they might be doing to their own business just because they're a human being making mistakes. And if you can have a good coach who you can trust and whose opinion you can respect and who you can learn from... I mean, it just, it really helps you. You know, the coach can be uh, someone who gathers feedback from your team and shares it with you in a way that, you know, is compassionate, but make sure that you, you, know, you get the feedback as opposed to your team just, you know, going off and talking about it, you know, over drinks and saying, I wish he would do this or I wish she would do that. So I think having, having the uh, don't, don't be, don't be old school and think that hiring a coach means there's something wrong with you or, you know, that like, you know, it's just, you need to be a great leader if you're going to run a company. And in order to be great, you need coaching. I mean, how many professional athletes do you need to look at to realize that absolutely every single one of them has a coach, every concert pianist, every, you know, everyone has a coach in these in these uh, worlds of sort of individual performance or athletic performance. And, and the idea that, a, you know, every CEO who's running a company, who has employees, who has people that are depending on them and customers are depending on them, that they're not going to have a professional coach to help, you know, to help them be more effective versions of, of themselves. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Um and so I think that's a really important thing to conceptually get excited about as a, as an entrepreneur. And uh, again, it's another place where, you know, if you want to hire a good coach, they're not free. So you got to be ready to spend money and spend time on it. But man, it's like, it's, it can be time really well spent. So, and that's some really important advice. And, and if, if we kind of take us, step aside from that, you know, that's the advice that you wish somebody would have given you when you started. What is some advice besides that, that you would personally give to other entrepreneurs? 
Well, I think one thing that I would say is uh, do everything you can to, um, I mean, do everything you can to bootstrap your company instead of taking meaningful outside capital in the initial years of the business's life. Um, it's so tempting and it's so much easier in certain ways to raise money. There's friends who might want to help you. There's family, there's venture capitalists, there's angel investors. And look, there's, you can do really well that way. Uh, but one of the really, one of the things that's so hard is the more money you raise, the more easy it is for you to delay figuring out how to make your business really work. Because the money you raise serves as this safety net. Um, you know, and it allows you to think, well, I've got some time, I've got 12 months of runway or whatever. Um, and so it takes the blade off your neck and while that obviously feels good in the end it just makes it makes it a lot easier for you to not really be forced to figure out what is my product what is my service and how can i sell it in a way that i am able to collect more in revenue than it costs for me to produce and the longer it takes for you to figure that out um just the worse off you are, the more money you have to raise, then you got more people around the table and it just limits your flexibility. So I think there's nothing wrong with raising money. There's nothing wrong with raising lots of money, but to the extent that you can be raising money once you have really substantially figured out a large amount of what it's gonna take to deliver a product to a broad set of customers with you know a good repeatable model, I mean it just puts you in such a catbird seat as the entrepreneur, and um, yeah. So you know I have a lot of people, I have a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me, and you know there's that it was always that point where it's like you know hey I just got a call from this professional investor, he's interested in writing a half million dollar check or a two million dollar check, should I take it? And you know there's no right or wrong answer to that, but you know gun to my head, close my eyes. If you told, if you ask me that question, I'm going to tell you no, you know, and, and the reason is, is for the reasons that I mentioned. Sometimes it's probably the right thing to do, but if I had to flip a coin every time, I'd, I'd rather it come up no more often than yes, because I think it creates a discipline in the entrepreneur that is much harder to cultivate when, um, when you have more money in the bank and you give yourself the illusion of, of time and safety. So stay away from raising lots of money until you really feel like you've got a customer base that can pay your bills. And that's the time that you might want to really push on the gas and, and raise a little outside money. Now, if anybody's interested in learning more about Axial, uh, they can find you at axial.net, A-X-I-A-L.net. Are you active on social media? Would you like to share any of your, uh, any of your social media profiles? Yeah, I'm uh, so I'm on I'm on Twitter. Uh, my uh, Twitter profile is Pete Lehrman. That's just P E T E L E H R M A N. So it's Peter Lehrman without the R. Um, 
And uh, then, yeah, Axial.net's a great website. Um, we got a lot of traffic there. There's a lot of free tools and data and information. You don't have to talk to somebody just to learn about what we do or anything like that. You can figure it all out in the privacy of your own Google browsing experience. And, um, and then, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. And if anybody wants to reach out to me privately on LinkedIn, um, I've got my contact information there. And sometimes entrepreneurs just reach out to me through that channel and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this and uh, love to just get your thoughts. So I always try and make myself available um, uh, for, for entrepreneurs that, uh, that might need a, a confidential, uh, quiet conversation. All right, Peter, thanks for coming on the show. We really, we really appreciate you coming on the Thrive Kings podcast. Uh, thank you for taking the time. It's been great. Thanks for a bunch of great questions and giving me the opportunity, Craig. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of Thrive Kings. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher Radio to never miss an episode of the Thrive Kings podcast.